The message today, the standaloneer, is a reflection of the atmosphere around here in these days, as we are looking, Lord willing, to a brand new family life center that uh, you'll see here in a little bit. You already saw it a little bit earlier, and it's also a reflection of the season of Thanksgiving that we're living in as well. I don't know about you, but whenever the seasons come upon us, I I, I go back. There's like my mind goes back in time, and I think a lot about my childhood and those childhood memories of mine. And Thanksgiving is certainly one of my most cherished, my my most cherished memories. That is, and uh, and also just I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about we used to build clubhouses, the gang and I around the neighborhood. We did it about about every other year. We'd build a clubhouse. I, I can remember several of them. I remember the first one we did under the Lynch's crab tree. We used linoleum for the for the roof, and we had a, it was really cool because it had a, a escape hatch. It had a hidden a, a hidden escape hatch. Now the roof line went like this, and it, right there was this escape hatch. You know, so everybody knew where it was, but it was cool anyway. You know, because our first clubhouse. You know, and and I can remember the one that we did that was that we we purposely built it up against the Andersons' garage so that the. Only the little people could get in. It was just this much space between the clubhouse and the garage, and the door was in the middle of it. So you had to just squeeze in. That way, the big people couldn't get in. So you can imagine how shocked we were when we all went in there one day, and Mr. Lynch was in there waiting for us. I don't know how he got in there, seriously. And then there was the one we built. I'm sorry. The one they built while our family was on vacation. I can still remember pulling in to the house, and we drove right by it. I went to Bobby, my little brother. They, they built a clubhouse while we were gone, and it was a really cool one. I mean, it had it had it had real roofing. It had two rooms, which was really that was super cool. And I mean, it was, I mean, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same because. We weren't there to build it. I mean, we got to enjoy it, but we didn't get to be a part of the process that took like a whole four days to build that thing. Well, Nehemiah, chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of. Shislev in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and asked. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He said to me, "The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down." Gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, wept and mourned for days, continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said to him, "O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, steadfast love of those who love Him, keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night." For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We've acted very corruptly against you. Commanded, you know, we acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples, which is what had happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen. That's Jerusalem, Lord. The place that's broken down. To make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him, he's referring to himself, mercy in the sight of this man. This man was the king. For I was the cupbearer of the king. The year was 444 B.C. And uh, the children of Israel, having survived a 70-year captivity, had been slowly making their way from an edict, which went out about 100 years earlier, back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel was first. Ezra showed up about 12, 13 years earlier in the 450s, upper 450s. And now... It's Nehemiah's turn. This book is going to describe him making his way back, surveying the damage to this dilapidated wall, seeing the deplorable condition of Jerusalem, realize the enormous task in front of him, and he would put together a plan that would not only accomplish the rebuilding of this wall, but it would be a plan that would incorporate All the peoples, after all, this project was their very own. He would want them to take ownership of this. They literally worked right in front of their homes. Can you imagine a wall where enemies are lurking just on the outside? How how fortified that wall would be in front of your house if you were the one given the task to put the nails and mortar and brick and everything else in? So, with all the threats around them, they held literally a vigil with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's what makes this such a wonderful book and a favorite of many, because it's full of drama, it's full of vision, passion, strategy, sacrifice, sweat effort, and great leadership. And not only did they get this job done in an amazingly short period of time, I mean, this, this wall had gaps virtually all around it. In less than two months, they completed the whole thing. But the motivation and sweat equity put forth would also become the motivation for the celebration that would take place at the very end of this book. They didn't come back from vacation or captivity, to find everything done for them. They worked. They gave. They risked. And in the end, they would explode in praise. Someone has said that the book of Nehemiah begins with confession, continues with construction, and ends with a concert. I like that. 
That is a literal outline of the book. Beginning with confession, continuing with construction, and concluding with a celebration. How do we know when God is in our plans? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? How can we tell God is behind us and before us and affirming us and what he is supposedly leading us to do? Let me give you, as we just look at the 30,000-foot view of Nehemiah, several reasons, several ways in which, rather, we can tell what God is in. Here's the first one. When the passion for the need causes us to cry out to God. I've often said, in fact, I said it 15 years ago, when we, you know, when we started doing things around here, building, buying, things like that, we don't create needs, we fill them. But we can only fill them as God agrees with our perceived need and indeed meets it. Now, in chapter 1, we just read it. Here's Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer of the king. The, many exiles are already back there. They've been going back for 80 or 90 years now. But the place is deplorable. He gets a terrible report. The people are scattered around. Half of them aren't living there. The walls are burnt, busted, dilapidated. You can't even hardly get around the place. It's so, so cluttered. And he's, he pours his heart out to God in confession. And I love that verse 4, the key is, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying until the, before the God of heaven. There's confession. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who, what? Mourn, they'll be comforted. Verse 9 says that, that he prayed in accordance with the promises of God. He recognized what God said. You turn away from me, I'm going to scatter you. But if you turn back to me, I'm going to bring you back to the place. Remember that, God? That's what we're doing. We're turning back to you. Will you keep your word? It's always a good thing to pray in accordance with the promises of God. And stop tattooing Philippians 4.19 to your forehands. Your forehands, where do you do that? Whatever, wherever. When you don't even understand what it means, some of you at least. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But the context clearly tells us that these people were faithful. They were giving. They were sacrificial. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 4, they were virtually the only ones helping him out. And it was because of that, my God will supply all your need. It's not just a given. It's not some carte blanche. For every Christian, it's, for, it's a card blanche for the faithful Christian. And it's a need, not a greed. We get that, right? So, so Nehemiah begins to contemplate his plan. You can see that at the very end. Lord, you know, bless me as I do this. So he's in front of the king. He's probably doing it on purpose. He's got it down. In chapter 2, his face is downcast. The king sees that. They tell us that wasn't a smart thing to do if you were a cupbearer in that day. So the king said, what are you so down in the mouth about? And it tells us, chapter 2, verse 4, Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He throws up an arrow prayer because he's got plans. And with that, he just explodes with boldness. He lays out a plan in chapter 2. Literally, it's specific right down to, will you also give us letters of commendation? I want to go back to Jerusalem. We need the materials. We need help. We need to go back. We've got to build this wall. 
the king comes through. You have not because you ask not. About a year after uh, we came here, 15 plus years ago now, uh, you know, we're, we're really landlocked here. And uh, we didn't have a whole lot of property other than what we're worshiping in. And we, in fact, we'd given some of it away in the years previous. So we really wanted that property over there to the south. So, but we were told, no, that guy will never sell it to us. So we literally, the leadership, we literally got on our knees. I can still remember doing that and asked God to give us that property. The very next day, I walked over to the owner and I said, would you please sell us this property? He said, sure, I'll do that. In fact, I'll sell it to you, and I'll give you, you $5,000 back as an offering. I said, okay. <laughs> and it happened. In 2004, when we grew out of the sanctuary at that time, God led us to put forth a plan that would trust him, that would trust that God would tap into the resources of his people, and we would not borrow, and we set forth we you know, set our minds to this and our hearts to this. And we're worshiping today in a facility with a nursery attached that was about a million dollars. And God raised the monies up. We never borrowed a penny. He heard our prayers. In fact, I, my son told me the other day, he said, Dad, and he was really young then. I remember like all this industrial equipment all around. You guys remember that? Some of you that are here remember that? All the equipment that hung around the sides. That was cool. It reminded not just the kids, but everybody else that this was a project. We were building more than just brick and mortar here. And then just a few years ago, there was this property to the east. And if you've been around here at all for years, you know that that's been a heart burden for us. Just the prime piece of property taking you right up against the woods, almost a couple of acres worth. And we approached the owner repeatedly every year, over and over again. And he kept getting harder and harder and harder. It just wasn't open to it. And uh, so we, we didn't really give up, but we kind of let it sit for a little while. And then one day, a couple of years ago, came up again in a meeting. I was not the one who brought it up. In fact, I remember it was Dick Ober who brought it up. He said, I'm still praying for that property of the East. I said, oh, well, let's pray about it then. And we asked God to give us that property. About a week later, a group of us were playing basketball out there, and the owner walked out from his, his property. He looked at me and said, can I talk to you? I said, Sure. And he said to me, a series of circumstances have taken place in my life. And everything's sort of caving in on me. We got to sell the property. I I, I thought I'd give you the right to buy it first. I said, okay. Thank you. I I mean, I didn't... I mean, his circumstances weren't good. But our God's in heaven. He'll do whatever he pleases, right? And he gave us that property. I I literally stood there in awe of God. And then there's the property of heaven. Because that's really what it's all about here. This this place isn't about all about expanding and buying property and building extra buildings as much as we may need them. Everything is about the property of heaven. God has a claim on people here. And so seven or eight years ago, when a group of men decided we were going to take a a day to fast on a regular basis and cry out to God for the souls of people, because that's where the true treasure was, by the hundreds people have come to Christ, as we have named them by name before the throne of grace, and we are in triple awe over that. 
I was reminded as I was thinking about that as a, a story out of, uh, out of Fox's Book of Martyrs uh, when the Emperor Valerian back in the third century was, he hated Christianity, was trying to destroy the church and he especially wanted the property of the church and he took a godly deacon whose name was Lawrence who was over the properties of the church at that time in Rome and he said, I want you to bring forth your treasure. He said, you're going to have to give me three days. Three days is all you get. Three days later when... Valerian's uh, officer went to collect the monies. There were no monies, but there were hundreds of people from around Rome that they had preached the gospel to. All kinds of people, down and out, up every, every level of society. And he said, Lawrence said to Valerian's officer, here is the treasure of the church. So believe me, when we talk about what God is doing here, and you think we're twisting your arm to give, or get into your pocketbooks, or, or go, go into your 401ks, yes, we are. But it's not for the money. It's not for the sake of the money. It's for the sake of the true treasures of heaven, which is what this is all about. Today, we talk about a large addition. We're not borrowing, we're gathering treasure for a greater treasure. Okay, that was a long first point. They're going to get shorter after this, I promise. Two, how do we know God's in it? When careful planning leads to spirit-empowered action. This is intriguing because here... Nehemiah, in chapter 2, sizes up the situation. What he had heard back in Persia was spot on. Here's how the NLT puts it. The city officials did not know that I had been there. He'd made his way back. Or what I was doing, for I had not yet told, said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been upon me. About my conversation with the king. They replied, well, yeah, let's do this. And they did. The whole thing, even in the heart of Nehemiah, was for the glory of God. You notice he was, he was devastated by the disgrace, quote unquote, that this was bringing to the testimony of God. And the vision that God had given to Nehemiah, the work of God, the answers to prayer, his articulation of that to the people just inspired them to great planning. But all of this, all of this culminated because he took a few days to walk around this place and size up the situation, which is what we've been doing here for the past several years. Here's a third thing. When wise thinking leads to great cooperation. I love this chapter, the third chapter of Nehemiah. It's not a very exciting chapter to read, except because it's just filled with names. But I once preached a message from this chapter, and I called it the principle of next to. God loves unity. He loves it when his people work together. Building in this era, his church. He's the one who builds it. I get it. Jesus said, I will build my church, but he will use his people to do so, right? 
15 times in chapter 3, you have next to, next to, next to, next to, next to, next to, next to. Literally, the Hebrew says, on his hand. The idea is, I'm working here, and on my right hand is this guy on my other hand. They were literally like an assembly around the interior of Jerusalem, building this wall. In fact, it it almost as if the writer, uh, the Spirit of God, kind of changes course with Nehemiah, and maybe they're getting tired of the phrase next to, and so repeatedly at the end of Nehemiah 3, you have after him, after him, after him. This might be the most extraordinary example of cooperation found anywhere in Scripture. Verse 10, for instance. Look at verse 10, where it says, again, I'm in chapter 3, next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harumph, Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. What a weird name. Repaired opposite his house. And then verse, skip down to verse uh, 23. Go down to verse 23. It's all over. After him, the priest repaired opposite their house. And the same thing with the next group, beside their own house. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. And verse 12 says they were even bringing their kids. Even their daughters were getting involved in this. Everybody was getting involved. And you'll see at the end of this thing, that's why the kids are rejoicing right along with the parents. All building sections of the wall across from their homes. How fortified do you think that wall was? Listen, whatever we do as a church, we do together. We need the people of God to give, not knowing what the, you know, the right hand, not knowing what the left hand is doing, as Jesus said. In other words, you give in secret, but you give. We need small givers and large givers and very large givers. Did you hear that, very large Resources, people, whose only desire is the praise of God. There is a different kind of building, as we've been saying. We're doing this building we're doing physically is all for the greater treasure, the greater building that God has called us to do. And we do it. Every, everything here is predicated on need. In this text, in our text, it should always be predicated on need because God doesn't create, we don't create needs, we fill them as God leads us. And with many enemies lurking about, everyone's cooperation is required. Now, not everyone. I mean, if we read the whole thing, verse 5 says... Where is that at? Yeah. It says, uh, next to them, the, the, the Tekoites, Tekoites rather repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So, okay, not everybody got involved. For some, it was too cool. They were too busy. Had things going on in their lives to get involved. Listen, You can choose to be that way in the project God's laid on us. 
And guess what? You'll be able to enjoy the fruit of it, the results, but it'll never be the same. It'll be like us coming back from vacation with the other clubhouse going up. Here's the fourth thing. When leadership inspires its people to fight for their families. I heard James Dobson recently, you know, who had, you know, there, you know he gets a lot of guff over the years for being, you know, a little cycle babble, you know, you know, mixed in with spirituality. But he's a man of God. And he stood up for the family for many, many years. And he's an old man now. I heard him recently say and bemoan the fact that we're losing this battle in America. And I fear that in our efforts to shelter our children from a world that could hurt them, we're not preparing them from a wor- we're not preparing them for a world that needs them. That needs their message, that needs the message of Christ. And in chapter 4, Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. That's their enemies. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. And fight for your homes. That's inspiration. And they did it. As chapter 4, verse 17 says, They did it. You know, carrying, you know, they labored working with one, you know, with one hand and holding a weapon with the other. Just imagine that. Their enemies, as ours, are very real. They're always lurking, and they're not to be taken lightly. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against real rulers, against a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So put on the whole armor of God and be ready. Our endeavor must be taken with the greatest caution not to let our guard down. Parents, only God can save your children. Can I get an amen from that? But you are responsible nevertheless to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to warn them, to train them, to teach them, to lead them. Not by a perfect example because I haven't found anybody that's perfect here yet. But by an example, nevertheless, the project before us is for our children. But it all rises and it falls in your home and in mine. Here's a fifth way in which we know God is with us when distractions don't distract us. Our enemies are many. Remember, I, I was thinking about this when Jesus, remember Jesus had that conversation with the Gadarene demoniac, you remember that? In, uh, in Mark 5, he says, like, uh, what's your name? What's your name? Singular. Legion. Whew. There's a lot of us in here. Greater is he that's in you than he's in the world, amen? Nehemiah's enemies were incessantly trying to bring him down, lure him out, and kill him. Cut the head off. Cut the inspiration out. And you'll kill the heart of what's going on there. And it would, have, it would have worked. But he refused to let distractions distract him. In fact, here's a classic statement. I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Sorry, can't keep the appointment. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Good question. He didn't. 
His distractions did not distract him. Listen, God, listen to this. God purposely designs through various means, even evil, even though the evil ones don't know what they're doing, distractions to come into our lives to see if we will choose the greater, higher purpose of God in our lives. Today, one of our greatest distractions is just plain busyness. And while this is for our kids, our busyness is often centered on kids. This is going to be the part where some of you are going to go, eh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. I'm going to. So I'm just prepping you right now, okay? I've been, along, I've been around long enough to remember when cities and communities actually honored the Lord's Day. And, and, and virtually never scheduled activities, family activities, youth activities, and every other activity under the sun. Now, I got to think about this. Why should I expect the, the cities and community that don't know Christ to do things for me anyway? Very nice of them for a while. They don't do it anymore. Right? Listen to me. Parents, if you're going to fight for your children then you must see the greater need for their spiritual education. It begins in the home. Do you remember Eric Little? The story of Eric Little, the great British runner. 1926 Olympics, expected odds-on favorite to win the gold medal in the short-distance run. But it's a famous story. Got to the games... The, heat, the schedule for the heats came out, and he saw that he was running on Sunday. Well, Eric was also studying to be a missionary. And he just happened to have a personal conviction not to work on Sunday. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to buy into Eric Little's conviction. But you got to respect a man like this who, without a scintilla of hesitation, said, I can't run. He said, what do you mean you can't run? The king of England himself got involved in this thing in an attempt to persuade him to run. The honor of England is at stake. Well, he had a higher honor than that. And he didn't. And if you know the end of the story, they ended up putting him in a long-distance run, which they thought he'd burn out around the corner. He not only won it, he broke a world record. Now, am I suggesting that Sunday activities are a sin? No. I like to watch football. I like to do things with family. I like to go places. I don't get to very often on Sundays. I have a job, you know, keeps me around. (laughs) No, but I'm suggesting they can be a major distraction and a potential of distracting you from a greater cause. So take, take note of that. Nehemiah didn't allow the distractions to distract him. There's a lot of them that are going to be more, I mean, there'll be 20 more invented over the next 20 years. Keep the greater cause before you. Six, when even outsiders see a job God done. Notice I didn't say a job well done, but a job God done. The truth is, the truth is we Christians give credit to God for a lot of things I'm I'm thinking he didn't do, okay? Okay? 
I've heard Christians give credit to God for things I'm looking at saying, are you sure God did that? I'm not so sure. We're so used to chalking up every positive thing that occurs in our life to God's blessing, and we forget that we have an enemy who would be only too happy for us to succeed in things that don't count. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Wait a minute, we don't smoke, do we? Some of you do. I'm not coming after you today, I promise. Gee whiz. Remember Jonah? Jonah decides to run from God. He goes down, and chapter 1 says he found a ship headed to Tarsus. The Hebrew word found carries the idea of something that's uh, serendipitous, like, ho-ho, there it is. It must be my ticket out of here. Listen, if you will do something that will take you away from the glory of God, Satan would be more than happy to provide complete transportation facilities. So stop Stop thinking every wonderful thing that happens in my life, that's from God. What do you, how, do I, how do you know it's from God? Some really ridiculous thinking goes on in the church. Francis Chan was right when he said our greatest fear should be a failure, which should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So how do I know if God's in this thing? I think it's because when, when outsiders see a job God done, and this is my favorite verse in all of Nehemiah right here, baby. My favorite verse right here, boom. When all of our enemies heard it, this is the wall coming to completion, and the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Wow. We may not always get this, but when outsiders see God at work, he probably is. Seventh. When God's worship is fervently expressed and his word is faithfully exposited. Later on in chapter 8, We have it here. It says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands even. So feel good, the 13 of you who raised your hands a little bit earlier. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I haven't even been doing that. And Jeshua, 12 other guys I won't name, they were all Levites. Helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They literally were going around as the law was being read and they were explaining what it meant. That's what we do. They read from the book of the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that people understood the reading. The building of the wall had one purpose in mind, to truthfully educate God's people from the children on up so that their worship could be both in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, they who worship me must worship me in spirit and truth. There's a lot of worship going around here, and there's a lot of people using the name of Jesus, and there's a lot of churches that are doing a lot of this and making a big buzz, and they're talking about Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of heaven. 
It has to be in accordance with truth. Everything we do, everything we do must point people to Jesus. Not just any Jesus, but the one true Jesus that the Bible speaks of, whom we worship. And finally, we'll know God's in it when our joy is heard from afar. Remember I said the book of Nehemiah begins with a confession, continues with construction, and it ends with a concert. And chapter 12 of Nehemiah is so, so cool. With the wall completed, people are back, administration coming about, thousands of people are back in, two gigantuan choirs assemble the wall, going in opposite directions, they come and they meet on the other side of the wall. And in this circular fashion, they began with just great thunderous praise to God. It's loud, it's colorful, it's dynamic, it's wonderful, it's fervent. And it tells us, and they offered great sacrifices that day, rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. Everybody was rejoicing. But catch this. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That's not up there. It should be up there. There we go. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The first church I pastored was... um, a little country church, and I remember a guy came up to me one day. He said, you, "We pastor a country church." I said, "Yeah." He says, "Is it a four window or a three window?" I said, "What?" Yeah, we always just kind of measure by four or three window churches. Ours is only a three, <laughs> but we used to leave the windows open. And uh, and I ran into this lady one day as I was walking through the parking lot, and she was from the Lutheran church, which was right next door. And uh, she said, you know, I'm so glad our services start just a little bit later than yours. I said, why is that? She goes, because when I get out of my car in the morning, I just stand out in front of it and listen to your people sing. It just super blessed my heart that the joy of the church was being heard. German philosopher Nietzsche once complained, if the Christians expect me to believe in their Redeemer they have got to look a lot more redeemed. Let me suggest that that look is a look of joy. And it's a joy not only to be seen, but heard. Inherent in the joy of the Lord is a heart of gratitude. Much of what is going on here was large, loud, colorful expression of thanks to God for what he'd done. This morning in my own devotions, I read Psalm 126, where it says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like people who dream. They're just, they were like in a dream. And then he said, and the nations will say, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. No, that's what it says in the text. The nations will say, the Lord has done great things for them. That's the outsiders looking in. And then the psalmist replies, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Amen. 
Their joy was heard from afar. Is yours heard even close up? Where there is Jesus, there is joy. And the Apostle Paul said that those of you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. Have you ever read that? The reason Jesus came was to bring us near. Not into a temple, not into a, not into a city with a wall around it, but into his church that has invisible walls with bricks. In fact, each one of us are likened in the New Testament as, as a brick, you know. To hand me another brick means another person got saved. He's building a lot bigger thing than we could ever build here, okay? I get that. But some of you don't know him. You're hearing it and maybe even seeing it, but you're still an outsider looking in. You haven't had a time in your life where, like Nehemiah, you recognize your own sin. Did you notice that? He didn't just confess the sins of Israel. He confessed his own sin. And when we turn to God, we first recognize that we are the sinner. We are the ones who have failed him. We are the ones who have been cast aside. We're into a different captivity. The captivity that you're in right now will never, ever end. It's an eternal captivity out of the kingdom of God into a kingdom of darkness. The Bible calls it hell, and it's very real. But Jesus Christ, the greater Nehemiah, has come. He has come. He has lived. He has died. He has resurrected for you. And if you will place your faith in him, you'll be another brick in the house of God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for this time, this overview of this great book. I pray in some way we've been inspired, instructed, encouraged, convicted, and I pray in some cases converted. If that's you, my friend, you're here visiting, you don't know Jesus, but you want to, you want your sins to be forgiven, you're tired of being an outsider looking in, and you would like to know what it means to have your sins forgiven to have a place in heaven, to be a part of the kingdom of God, the church of God. Then hear this. God loves you. He's already demonstrated that by what he did for you when he died for you on the cross. That's right, God died for you. Jesus was, is, never will be God, and he died for you and rose again. Would you, would you believe that today? Would you embrace that with your heart? Fellow believers, followers of God here at Sailorville, please know before the God of heaven that I pray to that this was not a message of manipulation. From my heart, it was not. But one, I pray, that would inspire you just the same to contemplate where your resources are going. Do they have eternal value? I think, we think, we believe that what we're doing here has eternal value.
And I pray we take these things to heart today as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.